Hey, this is Nick DiMatteo from Music Is Not A Genre. I just wanted to take a minute to talk to you about the service I use to record and distribute my podcasts. If you haven't heard about Anchor, let me tell you from experience, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Here's why. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. So please take a moment out. If you are planning to create, record, and distribute podcasts, take a look at Anchor. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey, I'm Nick DiMatteo, and welcome to Music Is Not a Genre, the interview edition. I don't know why I say it like that. Uh, Thank you for tuning in, whether you are watching or listening. Uh, As always, you can see everything I do at patreon.com slash music is not a genre. Please donate there. Everything you donate helps support this podcast and music and other things. Or you can go to the audio version at anchor.fm slash music is not a genre where you can also donate. Uh, That one is free, though, if you would prefer it that way. And it'll tell you where this podcast is streaming, such as on Spotify, Apple, Google, and elsewhere. And as always, my public hub, is on youtube.com slash Nick DiMatteo, where you get this podcast and live music and recorded music and a whole bunch of other things. Uh, with me today, it is very special episode. I believe this is the 20th edition of this interview, a special interview uh, portion of Music Is Not a Genre. And with me today is Steve Erickson. He is a music producer, music and film critic, uh, recent releases, uh, singles are Ominous Drone 7 in the form of a mortal girl. And he also just told me he has a new album in the works that will be titled Very Special Episode. Steve, how are you today? Um, I'm doing pretty good in the, in this gray cycle that New York is in. Yeah. Uh, it, it's been a little rough weather-wise. It's been winter weather-wise, I guess is the best way to say it. Yeah. We're at least getting seasonally appropriate weather. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, December was actually kind of re- remarkably warm. We're getting stuck in it now. Yeah, it's here. And, you know, considering everything the world is going through, it's it's oddly comforting that winter is actually winter at this point. <laughs> So uh, why don't you, I love asking this question, uh, all my guests, uh, why don't, to the best of your recollection, tell everyone how we know each other. Well, I've worked with you three times as an actor. The first time was, I think, like almost exactly 20 years ago, when I did this sort of staging of a short, a script for a short that I wrote, and I never actually made, made it into a film. Then a couple of years later, I made a short film with you. And then in around the beginning of 2020, I had you do the voiceover for a short that it, it got stuck in editing. And then I fell out of touch with the editor. And at, at this point, I think it's the, the short is about internet culture and sort of the YouTube algorithm and my experiences with it. And I think it would sound, I wrote the, this book in 2019 
And I think it would, if I would, if the film were finished and released now with the exact same text, I think it would seem kind of weird. Um, Yes, that's, uh, I mean, that's what I remember. I was going to say it's been about 20 years and I didn't know the exact timeline, but I recall doing that staging in, uh, I think it was Anthology Film Archives, right? Yeah. Yeah, that was fun. And then we did the short and I think the short was called PIL, right? Yeah, unfortunately, the short was recorded in a basement that had terrible uh, audio, and I, I haven't really circulated the film much or tried to get it circulated because basically nobody can understand the dialogue unless they read the script beforehand. <laughs> it, um, yeah, I, I, I mean, we we had a sound man for it, but it just sound this audio was just horrible. <laughs> That's one of the hardest things to get over. For me, I think, you know, everyone says, if you have good lighting and good sound, you'll probably have a pretty good film. I mean, if the content's there, but if those two things aren't working, it doesn't matter how good the film is. So, yeah, and and then, you know, we kind of connected here and there through the years. And then 2020, I did do that voiceover. Uh, it's It's interesting that, I remember it being about the internet and that culture. And you had said even before that you thought at this point it might be a little dated or there might be other, you know, because it was written in 2019 and started in 2020. So many things have happened since then, as usually happens, but especially in the last two years that it might have to be reimagined or rewritten or. Yeah. Well, the, the, the genesis of that project Although I I don't refer to this was the night where I had I got food poisoning shortly after Christmas in 2017, oh. and I I stayed up all night vomiting and I was trying to distract myself and I was I think I was up until six or seven a.m. and I was just in front of YouTube clicking on anything that I thought might might make me feel better and I watched all these prank videos and they were just so obnoxious and there were also many of them were either really really fake obviously fake or they would have been quite dangerous if they weren't fake like storming in on your friend's house and claiming to be DEA agents conducting Um, a drug raid I'm pretty sure that that was that was staged but if it if it wasn't, then like one of your friends happens to own a gun, or, or there there's some that are even worse, like explicitly racist stuff, like pretending to be a cop in the hood. I, I mean, that like that's their wording, not mine. But anyway, around the same time, I was getting a lot of kind of troubling recommendations from the algorithm. Like I would watch a video about how to direct action scenes, and one of the things on the sidebar would be. So about kits to make to make real guns. There was a video I watched where someone ordered one of those kits. He ordered it someplace in Asia and showed like this hunk of metal. You need lock equipment for this, but he was able to make a working gun. And I didn't really search this stuff out, but then I, I got the idea to to search it out and could make a film about the darkest stuff that I could find. And I really it quickly started to get really masochistic and I stopped because I felt like it wasn't very good for my mental health. But I also, the voiceover you read is kind of about that period, also trying to find some kind of larger like commentary about conspiracy theory videos. About a decade ago, I found 
all these like Beyonce is part of the Illuminati videos. I found them really entertaining, but they gradually started to get more and more political. They'd be like Beyonce and Hillary Clinton are part of the Illuminati. And I, I mean, you can see this leading up to Pizzagate and then QAnon in retrospect. So the script talks about that, but if I did it now, I think for one thing, YouTube is a lot more sanitized now. They do seem aware that they have an issue with promoting conspiracy theories. And I think the, the algorithm is just, one of the other videos I saw that really disturbed me was this guy going on Omegle, the video chat site and pretending to play Russian roulette. So sometimes his children were watching. And wow. to his credit, the guy eventually realized what he was doing was really screwed up and made an, made an apology and video and stopped making those videos. But I think now, like, pe people are become YouTubers to make money, and you're you're just not going to make money making videos where you aim a gun in your head, because the even if YouTube keeps it up, they're not going to let you monetize that. And also just the fact that the voiceover never acknowledges COVID or QAnon, I think, would make it seem really dated. Like, people would, would wonder... The voiceover went over all this imagery that I took from YouTube videos. Everything from, there was an Australian TV show about sailing, I think. I took about 30 seconds from that. There's one video I took that, that I watched that during the, the night of vomiting. Um, it was these Swedish kids dressing up uh, in army uniforms and carrying fake rifles on the subway in Stockholm. I took about 30 seconds of that, that look, you wouldn't really guess the context. It looks like Robocop or The Terminator or some kind of like 80s sci-fi movie. And then there was, there's all kinds of stuff. To, you know, I violated copyright enough that I, that I couldn't put it up on YouTube. If the film was finished, it would have to just go on Vimeo. And there are also poetry and song lyric quotes from uh, like Langston Hughes, I think the cure, the adverts, the name I use as a musician, you know, I use the tag, call it a magician. That yeah. comes from the advert song, The Great Bridge Mistake. Oh, I wonder where that came from. That's cool. And so I remember most of what you're describing there as far as this, this movie goes. And I can see why, you know, especially not having mentioned COVID or QAnon, which we didn't obviously know at the time, that it would seem dated. Do you think the whole thing is just shot or would it be worth reviving and updating? Well, uh, the the editor has moved back to New York and I'm back in touch with her, but I think she's probably too busy to work on it right now. I think I would keep the images. There was no direct connection between any of the images and the text. I was pretty careful about, about that. I didn't want them to just be illustrations. And if, if I did it again, I would have to start with a completely different text. What I wrote was really about my own experiences, but I hope that it also works as some kind of larger cultural criticism. I don't think I really have anything to say about what the past two years have been like that hasn't been said at, at nauseum. That's a great point. There's so much is out there already. You wouldn't have thought two years ago or more that things could actually accelerate even more, but in the last two years, things have accelerated so much that what else is there really to say about any of that? Yeah, back in, back in March 2020, I wrote a script that I wanted to shoot. It was another monologue. It was from the perspective of, of a politician. And I felt like even by the time the Black Lives Matter protests became really big, 
just a couple of months later, even that team dated, even though it was only written a few months earlier. It really is. It's one of these, you know, the, the just watershed periods in history, like 9-11, might, you might consider, or any, any of the world wars, I, I suppose. And you just really can't think of the world the same way now that you could have before. Yeah, people keep saying we're going to go back to normal eventually, but I feel like the world has permanently changed. And maybe, uh, unfortunately, we're going to be more uh, more isolated as a permanent consequence of this. Wow, I didn't even think of that. Yeah, we were. I was just talking with Catherine about it. You know, she kind of makes the point that normal as we knew it was already pretty messed up. There were there were so many you know issues in our culture and in the world at large, and now we're still in the middle of this crisis, despite what some people might be saying. And to Add on top of that messed up normal, this whole, all of, you know, the host of new issues, including being more isolated, really makes me wonder, I mean, I don't think that there is any normal to return to. Whatever the the new version of normal is, it's going to be something quite different. Uh, you know, there was a hope that it would be better in some ways because of the protests and and progress moving forward. I don't I don't really have an answer as to whether or not that'll happen anytime soon. Uh, but do you have any thoughts on where you think we'll be in say 2024? I don't know. I mean, politically, probably there was a period lasting maybe till the end of 2020 where some kind of serious change could have happened, and then it got. You know, there's been a massive backlash against the the whole brouhaha about critical race theory. The people who are angry about that don't even know what it is. They just mean, like, speaking and teaching honestly about racism. They're violating the First Amendment on a massive level by banning teachers from teaching about it. You know, if anything, that window of change, we weren't able to capitalize on it. And I don't know, it, it you know, it might take a generation to get out of I don't want to get too political, but like starting with Trump's election, even during the primary, there was this huge debate between liberals, liberals and leftists about whether Bernie Sanders would would win or would have won if he was the president. Uh, I mean, the Democratic candidate and what this debate within the Democratic Party because of Clinton losing and Trump, Trump lost in 2020. I mean, he he lost both the electoral and the popular vote, and there hasn't been this debate among Republicans. Like, I know never Trump Republicans exist, but it seems like they all have jobs with MSNBC and don't really don't really vote or or you know, like Republicans didn't go. Oh, our president lost. We should stop. Uh, you know, openly advocating bigotry. Instead, they've kind of doubled down on that. So I think, as I said, I think it might take a generation to get out of that. But I, I don't want to get too heavily into politics. To get back to music, I wonder about what's going to happen with live music in the long run. Depending how much we can get COVID under control, I think it's possible that there'll be a much smaller audience for live music in, in the long run. I, if if COVID becomes something that that's like the flu annually, except maybe killing a hundred a hundred thousand or hundred fifty thousand people a year the uh, especially seeing the number of musicians who died of covid or have come down with it it seems like a really dangerous occupation in that respect 
So, like, personally, I won't go see live music right now. I'm on the mailing list of some publicists who've invited me, and there have been a couple of shows. I, I'd go see it out, outdoors, like in Central Park, but I, I won't go to a club now. Yeah, I'm I'm a little reluctant to do that, too. And I I want to say I, I, I don't mind that we got political, because I think that that's something that should be, you know, open to for discussion. But I appreciate you bringing it back to music and in particular live music. It really does kind of uh, connect to what has been going on in the world. And there are some other questions I have for you, but to kind of answer answer that or to kind of put it back to you on that, I think as a musician, what I've found is that it actually feels a lot safer on stage than it does in the audience. When, when we're on a break in between sets and we have an opportunity to maybe go out into the audience if we're playing some private events, it's more crowded. The people there generally don't have masks. You really don't know if they're vaccinated or not. And we're right in the, in the mix. So we try to, you know, isolate ourselves in a green room or for most of it, if possible. But when we're on stage, that distance is somewhat of a safety. And yet at the, at the same time, which means to me, I'd honestly rather be performing than watching a show. And that's kind of sad. I, I do think live arts in general still exists and are doing their best to try to, you know, revive. Uh, I don't think it's anywhere near where it would need to be to be sustainable. I think eventually it will get to a point where live music will feel like it did before and feel a whole lot less precarious. But I don't think that's going to happen for probably a couple of years. Yeah. Like I would wonder about people singing along and, you know, what particles they might be spreading by way of doing so. Also, if, if you go on a national tour, the, the same in, in New York, I'm sure you have to show proof of vaccination and, and photo ID to get in. But like I remember hearing last year about Mor- what's his name? The country's Morgan Wallen getting yeah. arrested in Nashville for drunk and disorderly after he got wasted at some bar in Nashville. And that was in, that was at the height of the pandemic, really, in like July or August of 2020. And I was thinking you can still go to a bar in Nashville and, and drink all night. If you tour the South that, you know, I'm sure their roles are a lot, are a lot more lax. It seems like there are a lot of people who are going around trolling in person, just being like, is it okay to swear? Just being like, screw you if I you want me to wear a mask. And legally, they might be able to go to go see live music if you play like Georgia or Florida. So that's a good point. I mean, we forget sometimes living in a relatively safe area, how different other parts of the country are. So, yeah, I could see a tour being more more dangerous for musicians. And there are only certain safeguards that you can put in place especially if you're playing smaller venues. I think it's even harder to control in a smaller venue. In a big venue, you can have some kind of proof, you know, have the company behind it. But if you, you know, offer proof, ask for proof and all of that, a vaccination, but in smaller venues, if it's just some individual ownership and that owner is not necessarily on board with that, then you're kind of rolling the dice when you get there as to how safe it might be. Yeah. So how how often have you, have you played live at, after the pandemic? I would say last year, ooh, that's a great question, maybe 15 times, something like that. Oh, 
and all all in this area. We we had uh, there were some things booked that were out of the area that were canceled or postponed, but everything was in this area. And even then, depending on the part of the city or Long Island or upstate we would go to, we'd see different behavior. When we played n- nearer to the city, you would see more people in masks and and certain protocols in the venue. Outside of the city, that tended to trickle away to the point where often you didn't even hear COVID mentioned or seen on any, you know, signage. Yeah. Were most of those kids indoors? Uh, yeah, I would I think about a third of them were outdoor and then the rest were indoor. And fortunately, the indoor, it, they were all very big spaces. So we didn't feel too crowded in or cramped, but it was still that kind of feeling of, okay, well, I just played a gig. Let's see how I feel in the next 10 days. And fortunately, not a single one of us got sick from that, nor did we hear of anyone getting sick from any of the places we played. But that, you know, that might have been just luck. Yeah. And of course, if it becomes harder to play live, it becomes harder to to make money off music, especially after the switch to streaming. And so... If it's only for about two years, that may not make a huge difference, just simply in terms of how much music is made. But if it, God forbid, we get uh, a new variant that's even even more contagious than Omicron, but also more dangerous, everything could be shut down for a year, again, for all we know. So it's, it feels like, you know, I don't know how much how much money you're making from Spotify. Like, I've heard all these horror stories about getting a million streams for a song and making $5 off it. And that probably depends on your record deal, your publishing deal, um, all of that. But like, I've heard that Bandcamp Friday became a really, which I think they ended at in, in December, last December, was something that a lot of musicians really relied on. So there is a difference. I, I interviewed someone last year who was very... I mean, very anti-streaming services. And he's been in the business creating recorded music for over 30 years and has his own following and, you know, does live DJ shows and things like that. But he will over and above promote his Bandcamp and release everything on Bandcamp and maybe now and then release something to the you know major streaming services for whether maybe it's a collaboration with another artist who wants it there. But he really kind of, it's something we've known for a while, how difficult it is to make money. I mean, I've, I've probably, you know, gotten a total of a, a you know, a million plays across the, the world. And I mean, the money that you make from that is it, you'd laugh at how much that, that you know, that, those streams garner. It's be, and it's be partly because if you are a smaller market artist, you get a smaller piece of that pie, even if the number of streams you're getting is exactly the same as some other famous artist. You know, the algorithm and the deals and everything are weighed more towards them getting a bigger piece of the pie. At the same time, you know, unless you have a great marketing machine behind you or money for advertising or you're touring and, you know, beating to death your Bandcamp page, it's a lot harder to get multiple streams on Bandcamp than it is on the streaming services, just simply because the streaming services are everywhere. Yeah. So it's real, real, it's a real catch 22, you know, do well, one, I, you suffer, do another, you suffer in a different way. Uh, well, with Spotify, given how much bigger they are than Bandcamp, I'm sure they could easily afford to do their own equivalent of Bandcamp Friday. Oh yeah. Where one day a month the musicians or the la- whoever owns the rights, in most cases it's probably a label, 
get gets gets 100 of the profits for that day. Their chairman recently invested 100 million dollars in the in the weapons industry. So he certainly has money to throw around. He he could have divided that money in among like the bottom 50% of artists on Spotify. Then that to me that brings up a, a larger point, and it's kind of why, in a way, I'm I'm happy that we started off uh speaking so politically, and that is that you can get as far away from politics as you want by talking about, let's say, you know, music and how music is made. But when it comes to music existing in the real world, the minute you start talking about making a living, politics enters into it. And and by that, I mean income inequality and disparity is greater, I think, than it's ever been in at least 100 years, if not ever, in this country. And the people who have money through, you know, deregulation and everything that's happened over the last several decades in the, in the government have no inclination to share the wealth in any way or benefit anybody else unless they happen to be someone who has that kind of philanthropic bent to them, which again is just their choice, then you can be at the top of an Amazon or a Spotify or or any of those and have enough money to actually, like you said, assist people way down on the chain, in this case, indie musicians, in actually making a living or at least making enough to pay some bills, but there's no structure in place to compel or mandate that that's where that money goes. So we all just cross our fingers and hope that they do it. Well, one thing I'd say, it's pretty much impossible to get your music heard beyond a certain level, like to the point where you could possibly make a living at it without becoming part of all these really awful corporations like Google and Spotify. Like I think back about Fugazi in the late 80s and early 90s, how they put out their own music. They charged $5 for concert tickets. They had a sticker, I think, on their CDs saying don't pay more than $12. Right. And it would, they never made a music video. And at the same time, they were big enough that they probably were selling about 300,000 albums. You know, they're at this point, if they wanted to get their album certified gold, they might qualify. But they were able to do that with absolutely no involvement with major labels. But now, even if you, even if there's no label involvement whatsoever, you have to put your music up on Apple, YouTube, uh, Spotify. So there's no way to get around dealing with all these corporations. Yeah, it's everything's kind of being funneled in that direction or in directions like indie band camp and your own website or word of mouth. Or if you happen to get lucky enough to get something viral going on TikTok, you know, and, and to base a career on luck, you know, is, is, is demoralizing, you know. Also with TikTok, it seems like there are a huge number of one hit wonders like artists who don't have any actual fans. And even a lot of people may not even have heard their entire song. I don't have TikTok myself. I've gone to the website a few times and gone, oh, there's a bunch of minute long videos of teenagers dancing to pop music and didn't find it at all interesting. But I can see it feel like there are all these subcultures. Like I read an article about some, some, this new genre called sigil core, which is like a mix of trap music and hyperpop with references to the occult. And I found this artist called Lucifer. And I'm not even sure what to think of, of his music, but it's really fragmented. Like no songs are longer than two minutes. And that seems really designed for TikTok. 
And then I looked him up on Spotify, and he has one song that has 40 million streams, which blew up on TikTok, and he signed to Atlantic Records. It seems like there are all these trends that, like, sea shanties were really big about, I think, about exactly a year ago on TikTok. There was one artist who got signed to, I think, Interscope, and got a gold single with the song Wellerman. But it, I feel like that was a fad that seems a lot longer than two years ago now. <laughs> and that guy never released a full album or even, I think, a second major label single. And I feel like if, if he did, no one would no one would be interested. But trying to blow up on TikTok seems like a way to maybe, like at best, you might get yourself a gold single, but it's not really building a career. No, and, and you have to care more about than anyone else that than anyone else does. And there are some smaller labels that believe in artist development and long-term careers, but so many, in, the, in this case with this hit single, random TikTok, just want to make sure they make money right off the bat. And whether or not that artist has any kind of longevity, they don't care. They they got the money they wanted. And, you know, so you take someone else like who knew when Old Town Road came out that that wasn't just going to be a one hit wonder that Lil Nas X would come back with music that it was obvious there's a passion and, and substance there and an intent to have an actual career. And that comes more from, you know, the artist than the company. Yeah, well, he he's brilliant at social media and also at coming up with ideas for music videos. Yeah, I I never would have... He also, his first EP seemed really rushed and impersonal. After he came out, I kind of got a sense of why it felt so impersonal. There's a lot more substance to what to what he's doing now. But yeah, I, I'm sure Alton Road would be like the Mambo number no. five or the Macarena. I, I think it's a better song than those, but you, you know what I mean. Yes, I do. Yeah, that's yeah, I have thought of it in those terms that those are two great examples. And and you're right. I do think it's a better song. I wanna shift gears a little bit because well for a couple of reasons. When when we met, I knew you was a filmmaker. And yet at the same time, you're that short film we did, you know, named after a famous post-punk band, kind of clued me into the fact that you had a pretty intense musical interest along with being a writer and a filmmaker and all of that. I I guess, you know, I'm not going to make this a two-part question because I think the answers might be too long. So I'll just start start with the, the first question related to that, which is... How do I put this? When you create, I, I remember I, I directed a film once. And when I was editing, I realized that the flow of the dialogue and the scenes and the way that the film was put together, it felt very musical to me that there is a rhythm and a flow to it. And and if one scene was too long, it's like having a one extra, two extra measures in, an, in a section of a song. And so I thought about it in that way. And that helped me kind of get some kind of cohesion for the final edit of that film. Not to mention, I threw in as much indie music as I possibly could in the film, which is a, a different way of making it musical. How important is music in general in the films you've you've conceived or made? And does that kind of filter in at all through the way that you put a film together? Well, I've never actually played music in the films, basically because I, I wasn't making my own then and I didn't have enough money to get the rights to anything. But I often used references to songs or quotes from their lyrics put into the dialogue. I've only edited one fit, my very first film, 
and I don't, I was pretty awful at it, you know, since then I've, I've hired outside editors, but the, like even the, um, that film that we, that we worked on in 2020, there were going to be intertitles of poetry and song lyric quotes. They were all about the sea and drowning. And that was kind of a metaphor for being uh, being online. But there was the adverts have a song called "Drowning Men," and I think there were there were going to be three quotes from them. And I was already thinking about making my own music then. Like I think "Crossing the Red Sea" with the adverts is just one of the best and most underrated British punk albums. I think it came out in nineteen seventy eight. They're just a band. They were big at the time. I I watched a documentary about their singer a few months ago. He's kept on making music right up to the present day. Like he drives around England and shows up at, at pubs to play acoustic guitar. Oh. But they had a period where they were rock stars for about a year in England. And then their second album flopped. And then he had a solo career that also flopped. Yeah, they, I found that album really inspiring. If I had a bigger budget, I would use music in the films themselves. Or now I would, I would write my own music for it. It's kind of a bucket list goal to write a, to compose a score for a horror movie or compose a score for a horror movie. Yeah, yeah, I, I could see that, and and that brings me to the next thing anyway, which is we've exchanged music quite frequently over the last year or two, and when I've listened to the music that you have released, which by the way, callinamagician.bandcamp.com. It'll be, yeah. be linked below. Uh, you can hear everything that musically that Steve does. I have found, I guess, the two ways I would describe the, your music, and it's very broad because each song has its own unique kind of quality to it, but there's something unexpected about the way you combine sounds, and yet pretty much everything that you release is somehow cinematic. I can hear it you know, accompanying visuals? Uh, yeah, I think a lot in terms of composing imaginary soundtracks, certainly not for every song. For instance, there's one song I've written where the idea was write the trailer music for a remake of Lawrence of Arabia. And I, I've written a lot of what I think of as imaginary horror movie soundtracks. I'm really influenced by a lot of particularly Italian uh, 70s horror movies. Like, I don't know if you've seen Suspiria, but Goblin's score for that, I think it's my favorite rock music-based movie score. Wow. It's really menacing, really kind of like, I don't know, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer having a very bad trip, but, but <laughs> oh, much wow. better than any music Emerson, Lake, and Palmer actually made. <laughs> the first song I've written for my new album is mostly, there's no percussion on it, it's mostly layers of organ sounds, and it kind of sounds like a hymn, but it also sounds very ominous. I love that. I, I'm looking forward to hearing that. The, interesting, you you say that it's mostly organ. One thing I've noticed about how you put your compositions together is that you don't seem to be confined by convention in terms of a song being a song in that not just structurally and how it flows, but the your choice of instruments is not, well, this has to be bass and drums and keyboards and or guitar. Uh, your percussion is often as, you know, right on a, on a par with anything else that's going on in the song. And when I think of creating a song, I usually have this visual in my head of, okay, it's drums, bass, guitar, keys, vocals, you know, and you have more of a 
I wouldn't even know how to describe it. I, you got, you all should all out there just listen to it and see if you agree with me or not. But it just uh, seems like that's how you, you know, there's a different way that you put things together. Well, I can say one thing that I try to avoid is like having the percussion being snare, kick, hi-hat. I, I kind of have a rule that if I use any of those drum sounds, I, I will only use one of them. So the song that, I, uh, that I'm working on now has some Foley effects used as drum programming, and it has... It, it had out of those drums I mentioned, it has the snare. Also, has this like 808 cowbell sound. There's also a sample on it that kind of sounds like a turntable, although that's it, that's not totally what it is. And that I think that was also some some foley effect I found. But yeah, I uh, part of it is like the doll that I use has about came with about 2,000 presets, but I only like about 100 of them. Most of them are kind of painfully tinny. I downloaded sample packs and sound fonts since then. I only have about three piano sounds that sound at all realistic. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes really cheesy synthesizer sounds can sound cool, particularly if you're trying to evoke, say, 80s synth pop or 90s uh, video game music. Yeah, and it's how you manipulate the sound that makes the difference, too. When I first started recording, you know, in the can here in the you know, digitally, which was a good 20 years ago now, maybe a little more, I at first was overwhelmed because I had been, I had just done a studio recording and the the engineer was really into digital recording. So he gave me just a whole bunch of plugins and, and all of that. And I was on Logic at the time. And I thought, well, how the hell am I going to make decisions as to what I want to use or what I don't want to use or what's me or there's too many choices. And the the more I put stuff together, the more that kind of same thing happened to me where I could have 10,000 options but there were only uh, about a hundred of those that were my real go-tos. And that maybe meant that one song I would manipulate it to maybe sound a little different, but it was just style-wise and aesthetically, I would gravitate towards just a, a handful of drum sounds, a handful of keyboard sounds. Yeah, I mean, one thing I do, there are presets that on their own sound tinning, but if you put them through delay and distortion and phasing, and slightly detune them, they they sound much better. Uh, when I was, I think, 15, I won uh, Spelling Bee and, and bought a synthesizer with the prize money. Unfortunately, I took drum lessons, and I played drums in a punk band when I was a teenager, but I never, I should have, looking back, I wish that I had taken piano lessons and really learned how to play keyboards. I was more interested in, I guess, what would now be called sound design, like trying to program my own my own sounds, but I could barely I, I could barely play it. So there was something I gave up when I was about sixteen or seventeen, and I returned to making music more than thirty years later. But I I still have a lot of those experiences in mind. I wish that you know software for making music where you you don't need the technical skill to be able to play you know a melody on the keyboard in the right time or you know, you can like automatically go click C minor ninth chord rather than having to play it. And right. I wish those things had been available back in the 80s. A friend of mine actually bought a sampler uh, inspired by Public Enemy. And I would sometimes go to his house and fool around. But I remember it came with something like 15 floppy disks that had each sound you might want. Like there was one disk that had bass sounds 
you know, another for choir, vocals. That tamper cost him more than a thousand dollars. It probably had little memory. And um, one thing I find interesting is that a lot of the history of music is the history of changing technology. Even back to the the Wawa pedal or when guitar distortion became available. Like there's a story, was it Link Ray or Dave Davies who who damaged his amp with knitting needles deliberately to get distortion? Yeah. Because pedals weren't available back then. Yeah, I think it was Dave Davies, yeah. So even even before electric instrumentation like blues, he was playing acoustic guitar with a slide. That was kind of a way of changing the capabilities of the instrument. You know, that's a very early form of technology, but you can make a leap from there to using the turntable as an instrument. There's all kinds of possibilities that weren't necessarily intended when instruments were, were invented, or, or even just the fact that amplification adds a slight, a slight microtonal element because there's a slight, especially if it's distorted, it brings out frequencies that are slightly off from just playing a note on an acoustic instrument without any amplification. It's, you know, I did a, a, an episode of the podcast a year or two ago on how technology, the relationship between technology and music and how in many cases, technology drives the development of music and the changes happen because the pioneers start because they could afford it or someone had a friend had something, you know, eventually it becomes affordable to the point of, that becomes the new way of creating music or if you, you know, filters into all other kinds of music as well. Even if you're playing rock music, then certain kinds of sequencing or synthesizing, you know, entered into that in the, you know, in the seventies, especially. And that it was this kind of twin idea of technology and affordability that really pushed forward, pushed forward music when beat, you know, beatboxes, which became drum machines became affordable enough for enough people to use them that changed how, you know, new wave and hip hop and all that developed in the eighties. Yeah. There's a video from the early eighties of the rapper Ramsey rapping over the drum break from Billy Squire's big beat, which has been sampled all over the place. But this was before, I think the Fairlight was the only sampler that was on the market then. And it cost something like $15,000. So his DJ just went back and forth between that, that section of the song and two turntables. And honestly, the Fairlight was really limited. Like, I, I love the first song by The Art of Noise, but I find it really fascinating because their use of samples is very staccato. And that's because the Fairlight would only had no memory, basically. So they would, if, if you play the, like, there's a lot of horn samples on that that are just really like, in there and then they slam you and that's because they had like one second of memory oh um, right and so the length of the sound you know took up more, more memory if it was a longer sample yeah the fairlight also like i've i've always thought that peter gabriel's fourth album sounds like you could use a remastering it, there's something really the sound levels seem really low on it and i i found out recently that that's because it was pretty much performed entirely under the fairlight and that at the time that had a really kind of lo-fi. That's interesting because I do think that sometimes when new technology comes in, certain other aspects of music take a kind of take one step back. A, a simple example would be digital music, MP3s, 
and even to some extent waves are not as high quality as you might get on a you know a, a CD or or if if you're a fan of vinyl and in the case of electronic music certain elements became you know less dynamic because the initial iteration of those electronic sounds just didn't have the fullness that that a band would or that electronic sounds would maybe 10 years later yeah i think also if you went to a club and heard a night of drum and bass or house music it would sound much different there even if you heard the exact same records at home at least if you were playing in moderate volume because of the amount the bass capacity that dance club speakers had and uh, of course the volume you, you know you drive your neighbors nuts if you <laughs> Uh, if you play drum and bass records at 90 decibels for three hours. But um, yeah, there's a there's a quality there that often kind of got lost, particularly the more club-oriented electronic music, they kind of got lost if you listen to it at home. Yeah, and we and we are all, I would say the vast majority of us at this point are are beholden to not just poor sound quality in the source. But the speakers themselves, I mean, most of the music, I have speakers back here, which are my studio monitors, which are very good quality, but I just recently got them uh, last year. And up until then, there was this stretch of years where I would be listening either in headphones or on the computer or on something like an, you know, like a Echo or one of those little portable speakers. And they don't come close to even the cheapest stereos that we that we put together you know in the 80s or 90s or or that were you know pre i used to, i used to like to put together my stereos with separate components but then they would sell them all as a package and even those were better than most of the speakers that most people listen to music on are today yeah a, a couple of months after i started producing music i bought external speakers which are pretty good but they're i there's something kind of tiny and compressed about my the speakers that are built into my computer, and I feel to, to really hear what my music sounds like, or even what what other people's music sounds like, I have to play it through the external speakers. Yeah, you you do, and and it makes enough of a difference that it's at least satisfying to you, even if others in the world don't don't catch it. It, it you know, I know as a creator. It'll bother me if I feel like, well, I, sh- I should have monitored this. When I would do recordings in studios way back, we would have the big monitors, the crappy monitors. We'd have headphones. Then we'd go burn a CD or a cassette and we'd take it out to the car and listen to it on the car stereo. And you just find all these different points of, you know, the sonic quality and find the one that kind of hit all of them fairly well. Yeah, I, I find, this is kind of strange, but I find the first time I listen to music after uploading it to Bandcamp, no, no matter how many times I've listened to it in a DAW, it sounds different. Just because you're not, you know, in the DAW, you can see the level of every instrument, where every instrument comes in and out. And when you're listening, like trying to concentrate, but you're just looking at it, at it on Bandcamp, it really does sound different. Sometimes you realize the drums are drowning everything out or you can't hear the piano. And even though I played it all the way through 20 times before uploading it, those things suddenly seem new to me. And I think that there's a different quality on Bandcamp than there is from Spotify, than there is from iTunes. 
than there is from YouTube and your own, you know, your own copy of it, because all of those services have their own version of compression or normalization, which might enhance a part of the, the mix that you didn't intend. Yeah. Uh, one reason I stopped using SoundCloud was that the music sounded, sounded worse to me there consistently. Where it was obvious that it wasn't in my head or or that the song was badly mixed, but it sounded like they put it through something that made it sound muddier. Yeah, and and I don't think, I think I'm only satisfied hearing back the music that I create, like fully satisfied on my own system, you know, with as, as high quality a wave of, as I've burned or in the DAW itself. There's never going to be a point, I think, unless I'm spending hundreds of thousands of dollars with somebody who knows how to master something so that it sounds great on every service that I will feel satisfied listening to it. It really anywhere. Although at the same time, when what mo- most people don't have external speakers. So when, when I put music out on Bandcamp and people hear it, it makes it, it may wind up sounding totally different just because of they're, they're, they're probably playing through their, their phone or their monitor. A friend of mine made a good point. He's a he's a singer songwriter producer. Been recording forever, and that is that everyone has a different set of ears too. And we may often listen to more well known music with a bias because in our heads we say, "Oh, it's supposed to be that way." So you know, we might overlook that even the mixes of certain great you know music weren't the greatest. And when we're doing our own music, we're a little bit of a harsher critic. And we have to remind ourselves that very few, if any, musicians have ever come up with a perfect recording of a perfect mix of a perfect song, and neither will we. And that if we can get close enough for something to to create the impression that we want it to and have the dynamism that we want it to, then we've done our job. Well, there's also the fact that, say, if I listen to XL and Main Street on really bad headphones, I've heard that album probably... 600 times okay so there's this ear, earworm for the entire album built in and that fills in the gaps to some extent that's a good point yes that that we we'll hear things that we expect to hear what because of a, hearing it in a different way or a different version or different speakers and that's a lot harder to do when you're creating the music yourself you can't fool yourself in that way so i have a question uh a couple things the keyboard that you won in the spelling bee, that was a Korg, right? Do you remember which Korg yeah. it was? No, it cost, I think, $700. It was a digital synthesizer. It came with about 75 presets. It had a built-in sequencer. Maybe I was, I didn't understand how to use the sequencer, but it wasn't very useful because it would only record quarter notes. If I looked up the lines of synthesizers that they were offering around that time, I could probably find it. I I haven't I haven't gone back and done that. I do I do find some of this sort of synthesizer gear and nerd channels on YouTube really entertaining. Like there's a German guy, I think his name is Heimbach, who has all this gear from this the all over Europe. Like this, he uses a, a tape a tape machine from the Soviet Union as an echo as an echo uh, device. Cool. And he has this drum machine from the Soviet Union that on some level is really primitive, but because of that, it's uh it sounds really distorted, like uh something the FX Pro would use on a, on a song like Come to Daddy. Uh, 
God, that's great. Yeah, something that harder to find, I just love, because you'll end up with a sound that not very many other people are using. Yeah. I, when I, I started out with an Ensonic ESQ-1 around the same time you got your Korg, and that had a sequencer on it, which was fairly decent, but my second keyboard was a Korg O1W, and that onboard sequencer, I made so many songs with it, I don't ever want to have to <laughs> do that again, because it was very tedious. It had more capability, I think, than yours, because that was a later model, like 89 or 90 or something like that. But there was that whole stretch in between before home recording was affordable, that it was all just, you know, the four track cassette recorder or professional studios. And the sequencing did end up happening on board on a keyboard. And I think a lot of people, you know, forget that that was a very important part of sequencing development was that it happened inside the machine. Yeah, there probably has to be a way that you could play notes other than record notes other than quarter notes into the sequencer that I I just didn't figure it out or I or I misread the manual or something. It's yeah, I'm sure even at that point because Korg kind of knew what it was doing by the for that stuff by the mid late '80s. But it's just the fact that it's so tedious to even get to that point. I mean, I was determined to get to you know to a point where I could manipulate it however I wanted. I, I did kind of a demo with that in the early 90s and almost immediately abandoned ever doing it again. I have a, I'll show the fine folks and you here, the drum machine that I end up, gra- you know, using instead of sequencers is this here, the Alesis oh. HR16. And that has an onboard sequencer. You have to do what you have to do, but you're only doing the drums. So eventually you can kind of get your patterns and your fills and your and your riffs and all of that taken care of. But even that, at a certain point, I ended up saying I'm only doing live. And I did live for a while until I was, you know, the really got into digital recording. And from from Logic, I went to Ableton. And I've never looked back because they've just made it incredibly easy, like you said before, to do what we what used to take hours, days, weeks to do in the 80s and 90s. I've noticed there's been a general move away from bands towards solo projects even even if it's i i don't think japanese breakfast i don't think michelle zahner literally plays every instrument on her on her records but she's uh, she plays most of them right writes all the songs and yet and hire session musicians and i think a lot of that came from the expense of recording live drums and the fact that if like i'm just sitting in my apartment i can't even playing electric guitar beyond the very lowest volume, I, I I don't know how to play guitar or own one. If but if I did, I would incorporate that into my music. But I would have to play it at very low volume, you know, sitting in my apartment without driving my neighbors crazy. And if you haven't, if you live in an apartment, you really can't put a drum set there. Mm-hmm. So I feel like the move towards recording on recording on laptops using samples and program drums really had a lot to do with the expense of also, I don't know how many people can afford a recording space, especially as it gets more and more expensive to live in big cities to have to pay your rent and then also have to pay rent on a recording space. I mean, on a rehearsal studio for a band. Yeah. It's too much. Whether you're talking about space considerations or sound or yeah, I think overall what affects musicians the most is the expense of either renting studio space and an engineer 
or even just hiring musicians you you don't have or don't know. I remember years ago when a lot of the uh, musicals, maybe not on Broadway, but even some of those were switching from pit musicians to pre-recorded music, the smaller shows mostly because they just couldn't afford to hire an orchestra of musicians or a band that it would take to to do that. And on the one hand, it sucks as a musician, you're very sad, you know, but as a creator, you fully understand that now I can make an entire several, you know, albums of material of all different styles with different sounds and everything. And it costs virtually nothing as opposed to it costing, you know, 30, 40, 50, 80, 100 a million dollars that it might cost if you were using all, you know, real musicians in a real studio. Yeah, that that's definitely true. That's something that's really freeing. But at the same time, it's, it's also shaped the direction that music has gone in. That what kind of music has gone? That music has gone in. Like, I, th- I think in part to move away from rock music came from the idea that it has to be like this four-piece band with guitar, bass, and live drums. Yeah. I, I mean, obviously, people have, have flipped around with that format, but that's something that's really not feasible for a lot of people. But it is feasible to do a le- like electronic pop produced in a DAW. That's true. And I do think that things are coming kind of back around in some small ways to the sound opening up more to rock sounds, but still really being, like you said, produced by one or two people at most, not even a full band. Yeah, I was surprised. Um, like Olivia Rodriguez is good for you. Is the first rock song to get to number one since 2014. And wow. like around 2017, 2018, I never would have thought a song like that would, would be as popular. There's obviously this nostalgia for emo and pop punk that a lot of people her age uh, seem to have. Uh, yes. And there's another artist, British artist. I think the the stage name is pronounced Bia Badoobie Bia or something like that. And she did a lot of electronic stuff. And then her last couple of releases were almost grunge, you know, pop grunge. So I, there is kind of a trend of that heading things heading in that direction, but that's that does in a way it's shocking, but not all that surprising that it's been since 2014 that a live song has been number one because that's pretty much the state of how things have been. Yeah, you know we don't have a whole lot of time left, but I want to ask a question that I usually ask at the beginning of an interview, uh, and do not at all in any way feel rushed, but I think it's something that the audience, you know, would like to know, maybe you've been waiting for if you've followed along with all these other interviews. And that is, you know, we've talked somewhat about what you do and your music. I'd like to hear a little bit more about kind of how, where you got your start, how you developed as an, as an artist, uh, whether it's in film or music, and then even touch on a little bit what you're doing now outside of music, like the, the, the you know, review work and writing that you're doing. Uh, well, after, after I quit making music, I went to college and got a BA in English and MA in cinema studies. I've worked in movie theaters. I've been writing film criticism for, since 1997. I mean, that's a big interest, but I became uh, unemployed when the, uh, with the pandemic and I had a lot of time on my hands, so that really led into, it took me a lot, several months of spending hours a day working on music to get to a point where I could write a two-minute song. It, in a lot of ways, there were, there were 
the first year of the pandemic was very difficult for me and making music was a way of dealing with my anxiety without necessarily trying to often the emotions I feel when I'm writing a song will come through in it. And there's a lot of music I made in 2020 that to me now sounds like an expression of anxiety. I can understand that. But yeah. I've also programmed two uh, film retrospectives. I felt trapped in a lot of ways by the pandemic. It feels like I can do a ton of things within my apartment. They, I mean, obviously things have changed since the first year and it's more possible to get out. But it's not, it still hasn't gone back to the bad old days. <laughs> <laughs> but the uh, the amount of free time that I had certainly led into making a lot of music. But I've also founded, I had a, a number of other film, film ideas. There was a, an idea for a short, like a short horror movie about a couple who are trapped in their house during the pandemic. And they have a small child who is acting up and they become convinced that the child is possessed and they go on YouTube and watch DIY exorcism videos. I tried writing it and I just couldn't get more than about a page done. Do you feel like that writing comes and goes, the the impetus to write? And do you feel also like the music that you're creating is a good way to kind of bridge that creative gap during a time when other ideas aren't coming to you? Yeah, what I would say, filmmaking, even at its cheapest, is pretty expensive. I bought a microphone, I bought speakers, I've downloaded some sample packs, but all of that came to a total of less than $500. And making a movie for $500, even just a short, is incredibly low budget. There was a project that I was sort of into production on that I had to pull out of because I realized that it would, the film would cost about $3,000 to make. By filmmaking standards, that's a tiny amount, but I didn't have it. You see people talking about like low-budget films costing a million dollars. If you think about that's a huge amount of money. Yeah. And that's also probably few musicians, unless they're on the level of, say, Post Malone or Drake, spend a million dollars recording an album. Even before you could record at home, a lot of major label albums were probably recorded for like two or three hundred thousand dollars. And that would for a film that that's like pocket change or you could but, even do you know, like indie indie music for you know five or ten thousand or twenty or you know three thousand like you said and that makes enough of an impact that it gets uh, you know an audience and it the audience doesn't perceive it as well this is just shitty budget and you know it, it doesn't hold a candle to other stuff they take it for what it is and that's much harder to do with film. Yeah. Now, coming to the end here, and I'm, I'm I'm trying something new with all of my podcast episodes, which I want to continue with the interviews. I wish I had done it before. And that is that since you're a music creator, I would like to, instead of using my normal theme music, play out this interview with a song of yours that you would like people to, to listen to on their way to finishing up watching this video. Which one do you would you like them to hear? Well, since it's the, the last one that I've released into the world, how about the form of a, of a mortal girl? Okay, so I'll need you to send me a copy of that so I can tack it on to the end of uh, the video. But uh, yeah, and please, everyone, go to the Bandcamp page, callinamagician.bandcamp.com. We didn't mention this, but I think it's important for people to know that you a lot of the film uh, and, and other you know music writing that you do is uh, published in the Gay City News. So please yeah. patronize that. 
check that out. I can also give you a link to my blog, which has links to all my writing. That's great. I'll put it, I'll put it in the links below along with everything else we talked about. And Steve, thank you so much for spending this time with me as it's always been. It's very easy to talk to you. We always get on the interesting subjects and I'm sure everyone out there agrees. I appreciate the time that you spent today. Okay, thanks. This was a really good experience. Thank you to everyone for listening and watching and uh, patronizing as always, wherever you may be hearing or seeing this. And uh, this, I believe, is season four, episode number 22 uh, on the audio uh, platforms there. And thanks again for all of your time. And I will see you next week. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.